Father, you are faithful and you are strong. And we declare that. There is none like unto you. We count it a privilege, Father, to be able to uh, sing praises in this way so freely. We thank you for health, for strength. We thank you for protection. In the midst of fury and storm that we saw this week devastating a town, you also provide protection. Father, we thank you for a time like this where we can reflect upon what you have done for us. You are the God of protection. You are the God of purpose, and you are the God of direction. You set us on a new path. So we declare you are faithful. We declare that freely. Thank you for the time to be able to look into your word, and we ask for the anointing of your spirit upon us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start out this morning by asking you a question. A question that you may not necessarily agree with me on. The condition of American society is a reflection of God's people. True or false? While you're processing that, let me ask it another way. Do you really believe that what you believe is real? The two are connected because if we do believe, and if you say true that the condition of American society is a reflection of God's people, then we have to answer the question whether or not we really believe that what we believe is real. If we really believe that what we believe is real, as God's people, it's our responsibility to stop the tide of how America is changing for the worse. So I leave you with those two questions. While you think of this song, this is one of the most popular songs in all of America right now among Christendom. You are unshakable, unchangeable unstoppable in all your ways. You are on your throne and you are God alone. It's a song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean played all over the country. Christians, God's people, sing it over and over and over again. But I wonder if they really, really, really believe it. If they believe what they say they believe is really real. It's heavy stuff to start out a message with, isn't it? It's really, really heavy to digest. So let's step back over the last four weeks and see what we've studied that's taken us to this point in time where we're on the final message of meeting God, and I can ask you questions like that. Because in the first week, we started out with a Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and she discovered that Jesus is living water, and she was left saying to the people of her village, who is this? Remember the question that she asked of her friends. And then the second week, when Jesus met the lawyer, and the lawyer discovered that he was the only begotten Son of God, and Jesus said, you must face the reality that I am your Lord and your God. And Nicodemus carried Jesus from the cross to the grave. And then in the third week, he met the Wall Street financier, met the banker, 
And the banker understood that God said, I own everything. And so we ask this question, do you own your stuff or does it own you? Each of those individuals meeting God up until the point last week in which the prisoner met God, the blind man. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And I asked you this question in return. What has Jesus taken hold of you for? For what purpose has he laid hold of you? So in the context of that, that's why I asked those questions this morning. Do you believe that the condition of America is a reflection of God's people? So today, we're going to look at number five, your burning bush experience. And I want you to understand in the context of what Moses encountered in Exodus chapter 3, that he had to come to terms with the exact same question that I've asked of you. Do I really believe that God has called me apart to do something on his behalf, that he's assigned me this responsibility? Lori and I lived in the desert of Arizona for two years back in the 1980s, and I understood what it meant to have a desert experience. Now, when you think of Arizona, you only think of two things. Typically, people think of the big city of Phoenix, and they think of the Grand Canyon. They don't often think of the Sonora Desert and what it's like to live in the desert area. We didn't live in the city. We actually lived in the desert an hour from Phoenix. And it's a pretty lonely, desolate place. Where Moses lived was even more removed than that. It's perhaps one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. Godly people and ungodly people alike can tell you the story of Moses, mostly because of Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments and what Disney did with the Prince of Egypt. They have an image of their mind. I'm going to challenge you this morning to perhaps take on a new image of what Moses was encountering. So I'm going to, I'm going to just have you read with me from Acts when in the New Testament they were even talking about this. This will come up on the screen just for a paragraph here as a description of what Moses endured. Acts 7.30 says this, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. Even in the New Testament times, they knew this story so well, they would repeat it over and over again because they understood this life. For Moses, he's on day 14,600 of walking through a barren wasteland. Get that in your head. 14,600 days, 40 years have gone by since he fled Egypt. Day after day after day, all he hears is the jingle of sheep bells in his ears. And his best friend has become a wooden rod, a staff. That's a long ways to change from the prince of Egypt. To become one who's chasing after woolies for a living. While Moses was actively engaged in this profession, God called him into another one. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. I didn't look it up this morning, page number. Uh, it, it's in the pew Bibles in front of you. And, and if this is your first time here at New Hope, 
Feel free to take one of those pew Bibles with you if you don't have one. We have others to replace them. Exodus in the Old Testament, chapter 3. You may have heard many, many messages on this, but we're going to look at it again. Now think in context of this. The night before, Moses is out sleeping under the stars. Every day is just like any other day. Forty years have gone by. He's sleeping under the stars, tending sheep. He has no idea about what he's about to encounter. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold... The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, I will be with you. Moses has married into the family business. Jethro Enterprises has employed him as a sheep herder. For 40 years, that's all he's known. At age 40, you remember the story, he killed a man in Egypt, and Pharaoh sought to kill him. So Moses ran into the desert, even though he was Pharaoh's grandson. They were going to exact Egyptian justice. And for 40 years, he's 80 years of age. All he's done is chase sheep. And God said, I want you to do something for me. Forty years, F-O-R-T-Y. Many of you in here are not yet 40 years old. We have a very young church. Forty years. A lot erases from your memory over that period of time. He probably didn't remember too well life in the palace. The desert experience brings a whole lot of self identification. You have to ask yourself many hard questions. Lori and I used to go for long walks in the evening out in the desert, listening to the coyotes and the, the smelling the creosote bush. It's a great place to hear God. It's a very quiet place. Many of you can have desert experiences non-geographically. You don't have to be in a desert experience setting geographically to have an encounter with God. 
It could be in the midst of a desert experience place right now with God speaking to you. And I want you to remember this. Rarely does God speak to you in a desert experience in the midst of prosperity. It's usually in the midst of what you can't do. It's in the midst of what you don't bring to the table. And in Moses' case, that's the case. That's the situation. He doesn't bring anything to the table. But remember this, without desert experiences, rarely does God ever speak to us. When we're fat and happy, we don't really listen. It's when we're in despair that we stop and slow down. Exodus 3.1, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. I don't know if you've seen images, if you've gone online, you've ever tried to find Mount Sinai, pictures of it. It is a very, very desolate place. It is barren wasteland. And I don't know if Cecil B. DeMille properly captured it in the Ten Commandments. The only green vegetation is down in the valleys. And it appears that Moses was following a very common nomadic pasturing route. He was at least two days from his home, all by himself, out in the wilderness, looking for water for his sheep, looking for green grass to pasture them. And he's standing in the shadow of Mount Sinai. I personally would love to go there. No one knows where Mount Sinai is today. They think they know. They take guesses at it. But Moses is standing in the shadow of Mount Sinai. But he's focused on finding water for his woolies and finding green grass. Remember, none of what we read about has ever happened. He has no frame of reference. He has no knowledge about what God is about to do. Remember, this is a man with advanced training in Egyptian hieroglyphics. He knows science. He knows military strategy. He knows literature. He was raised as a prince, and he's out chasing sheep. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. First, get this straight in your mind. Whatever you've seen on television is not a good representation. When Cecil B. DeMille shows it in the Ten Commandments, it's just a little light bulb behind a bush that's glowing. When Disney showed it in The Prince of Egypt, they show this tiny little flame burning in a bush. Scripture says it was a blazing fire, and it really caught Moses' attention. Matter of fact, there's a a theory among scientists that this was really just a representation of what's known as St. Elmo's fire, in which gases escape from the ground and they ignite bushes on fire. But in the context of this, think of this. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. Would you not think that he would have seen St. Elmo's fire by that point in time? This is a remarkable experience, and the bush is not consumed. So this well-seasoned individual recognizes this is something entirely different. God chose a very small, despised, burning bush when he could have set all of Mount Sinai on fire. He did do that several years later. He blazed Mount Sinai, and the thunder of his voice came down upon it, and the winds ripped it apart. I thought of that this last week when Lori and I were standing in our front yard And a half mile away, we hear the winds begin in the churning. And what you'd always heard of a tornado, of the sound of a rushing train engine, is what we began to hear. 
Fortunately, it didn't come across our yard, but it did do devastation. God's power came down upon Mount Sinai, but that's not what he chose to use. The God of glory could have lit up the mountainside. This is a picture of Moses that I think is a good representation. Shock. A bush that's burning. This is artwork that comes from the study Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby a few years ago. It's a good representation of Moses. An elderly man who set aside and says in verse 3, So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. In our vernacular, he's saying, I'm here. Remember when we studied about the life of young Samuel? And Eli said, Samuel, go back when God's calling you and say, I'm here, Lord. Go ahead and speak for your servants listening. God called Samuel twice. Samuel, Samuel. Constantly, Jesus said, truly, truly. Repeating twice when he really wants you to pay attention. Moses, Moses, here I am, I'm listening. And it wasn't until Moses stopped his forward motion, he's tending his sheep, that's when God spoke to him. The question for you would be, are you moving so quickly about your work? Are you in such a hurry that if God called you, you wouldn't hear him? It was not until Moses stopped his forward motion, then God spoke. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew represents it very well. It says that at the moment that Moses turned, it doesn't say that God saw him, God's watching and wondering what he's going to do. At the very moment Moses turned, God said, Moses. It's at the moment that you stop and you wait to see what God's doing in your life that he sets you apart and says, I have a sign for you. But most of us are so stinking busy. We have no time to listen to God. Verse 5, Then he said, Do not come here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. You can check it out. Circle it in your Bible if you want to. That's the first time the word holy is ever used in all of Scripture. Never before this time. God said, I want you to recognize, Moses, you are on holy ground. We don't get this today. I want you to do something with me. I want you to kick off your shoes. Kids, it's okay. Your parents won't mind. Just hold your shoes up. Sorry if you have holes in your socks this morning. You never know what Mark's going to do to you when you come in the door. Hey, back in the spring, I had all the guys put red fingernail paint on their thumbs. They had to wear it for a while, okay? So consider yourself lucky. God demands a holy preparation of the hearts of his people when they come to him. This is what we bring to the table. This represented the work of Moses' hands. He was a shepherd. He had to make his own shoes. 
You had to earn the money to buy your shoes. You bring this to the table. This was not an uncommon occurrence in Moses' life, and I'll explain why. Take your shoes and just drop them. Moses did what you just did. Only here's why he did it. When we walk into someone's home, at least it used to be the culture in America, or you would go into a restaurant, gentlemen would take their hats off and put it aside on a coat rack out of respect for the home. Many times, perhaps young people here, if you wore a baseball cap to the table and your dad said, take off your hat at the dinner table, oh, come on. It's a sign of respect for what's going on in that environment. But for a Middle Eastern culture, this was not just setting aside a symbol of respect. Even today, when Middle Eastern worshipers, Buddhist, they will do this, they will kick their shoes off because when they walk into a temple, they consider it to be a highly sacred place and the presence of the one who is there is holy and sacred. What it represents is that I am unworthy. And God's saying, Moses, you are not holy, and I am. So set aside who you are. Shoes were pretty important to a shepherd. God's saying, Moses, set it aside. This is well known to him. It's not a mystery. And furthermore, he established a boundary, and you need to do this in your own prayer life. God said, Moses, where you're at right now is holy ground. This is a privileged place to be. Recognize that you don't come rashly into my presence. Hey, big man upstairs, are you listening to me? That is not the way to approach the God of the universe. Jesus said it this way. When the disciples came to him and said, teach us how to pray, he started out his prayer by saying, our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Do you start your prayer life out that way? God, you are so holy. And I took my shoes off. I am unworthy. That's more the state of mind of how Moses entered into this. After the condition of recognizing that he's on holy ground and that he set aside who he was, then God began a dialogue with him about what he wanted him to do. Verse 6, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Yeah, me too. Jesus declared it the same way. I am the God of your father Abraham. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is saying the same thing. I am. That's the context of this. I am who I am. Moses understands this guy is someone to hide my face from. This is an awesome, awesome experience for him. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed. You can write the word heard right there if you want to in your scripture. If it doesn't say that already, perhaps you have an NIV. I have given heed to the cry because of their taskmasters. 
for I am aware of their sufferings. You might be right now in a desert experience. Not only ready and willing for God to speak to you, but you might be right now in a place where God's going to set you on a new direction, a whole new course for your life. If that's where you are at, I want you to read with me Deuteronomy chapter 32. It'll come up on the screen. Just one little verse. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him, and he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. God knows that you're in a desert experience. He found him in a desert land. This is a beautiful picture. He encircles us. He cares for us. And what's more precious to your body than the pupil of your eye? You protect it at all costs. When everything's blowing around you, you shield your eyes. God's saying, I will protect you as the pupil of my own eye. I know that you're in a wasteland experience, and I will care for you. That's a wonderful promise. Verse 8. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up for that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. God appeared, if you're prophecy interested at all, exactly 430 years after the time that he promised Abraham that the children would go into bondage and that they would be delivered by a deliverer. He said to Abraham in Genesis, your people, your offspring will go into bondage for approximately 400 years. 430 years to the day God came to Moses and said, I am going to deliver my people. And behold, in verse 9, now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Great! I've heard God's plan. He's about to deliver my people. Remember, Moses was one who stood in the gap for people. Do you remember that he killed the Egyptian because he was assaulting a Hebrew? Do you remember that he rescued those girls at the well? because they were being assaulted by the shepherds. Moses is a rescuer. It's built into him. And God says, I'm going to rescue them, but it requires one more element, Moses. Verse 10. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, certainly I will be with you. I'm going to ask you to take out a bulletin if you have it, or a piece of paper. Students who are here today, you're less than 18, remember this moment. Because through the course of your life, you're going to want to look back on this time when you were advised to do this. Write down at some point, just write this reminder down for those of you who want to do this later today. Write down the God markers in your life. Those moments when God did something significant 
or you felt the presence of God upon you, when he obviously steered you in a course, this will help you throughout the course of your life to make those lifetime career decisions, those decisions about who you're to marry, those decisions about who you're to fellowship with, because God raises up markers in our life. So I would ask you this question. What are the God markers in your life? And they might look like this. At age 23, I'm working in a ministry called Youth Haven Ranch, and I'd only been on staff six months, and a church called and said, we'd like to have somebody from Youth Haven come out and speak. Well, I was on the radio at that time, and so Uncle Maury, who had founded Youth Haven, came to me and said, Mark, they hear you on the radio. How about if you go fill the pulpit at that church? Whoa. Hey, I'm an aviation student, you know, I didn't go to college for that purpose. Um, no, really, you can do it. Just go there, you'll answer their questions, talk to them, tell them about the ministry, and they'd like you to read something to them from Scripture. That stood out as a marker in my life when God first started steering me in the direction of doing what I'm doing this morning, teaching the Word of God. Those are markers in your life. They may seem, seem insignificant at the time, but you remember them. They pop up in your mind as those mile marker posts. And if you trace a line back down through those posts, you will see a common thread weaving through your life. The kind of things that God is saying, this is my course for you. How did you get over here? This is what's going on with Moses. Look at what is written about him in Acts 7.22. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in word and deeds. Educated in all the ways. He understood court protocol. He knew the way to approach the Pharaoh. God did not just choose some random shepherd to do this. It was a deliberate course. There is a deliberate course in your life for which God is setting you aside. But this is what Moses did that most of us would do. He said, who am I? Who am I to do this? That's a great question. Would you not ask the same question? Who am I? Who am I to lead these people from Pharaoh? God says, all you need to know is this. I will be with you. It is not who you are. It is who he is. Can I get an amen to that? It is not who you are. It is who he is. I will be the one to lead you down this course, Moses. Pharaoh is nobody in God's sight. And Moses, starting to get a learning assignment going on, you know, considering the actions that had brought Moses to this point in his life, you would think he'd be thrilled. Considering the fact that he tried to intervene on the behalf of the Hebrew slave back then, 40 years ago, that he's got a rescuing nature to him, you would think when God raises this up, he'd be thrilled. Do you desire a mighty presence of God in your life? Do you desire that? Because if you do, God will raise up opportunities. It's how you respond. If in obedience, when he raises those up. If you don't just turn away and say, not for me, I am not doing that. I can't go to Pharaoh. Right. He listened to a reasonable 
request. He had some prior training. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, it then becomes a matter of obedience. That's what we deal with more than anything. Obedience, disobedience. So I'll ask you what I asked you before. Do you believe that the condition of America reflects the people of God? I don't think it's really a question. I think it's a statement. When will it dawn upon us that the condition of America really reflects the people of God? When God's people return to Him and God comes upon His people in power, it's unstoppable. You look at it throughout the course of time. But American Christians are content with the way things are. We have become complacent. It's truth, and you can mark it down. You cannot have the power of God in your life. You cannot have God in your midst without recognizing that you are going to come under intense conviction about what He's calling you to do. It just doesn't work any other way. But unfortunately, here's what we do in church today. We equate activity with relationship. We think that this is life with God many times. This is activity. This is learning. And it's all very important part of our walk with God. It's part of relationship. But just this hour is not enough. Relationship takes us to the point where we can be responding in obedience to our God when He said, this is what I want you to do. Read this on the screen with me. It's from Isaiah. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of only rules taught by men. When God said that about the nation of Israel, they were at the height of their religious activity. The temple was burning day in and day out, offering sacrifices. And they equated relationship with God with their activity of making offerings. We have become content to live without the manifest presence of God in our lives. And that should be very, very convicting. All churches represent this issue. We have become content to live without the manifest presence of God. And as much as we cry out for it, we have to have the fruit that represents it. Do we really demonstrate it? My mind goes all the way back to Philippians that we studied last week when Paul said this, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What did Christ Jesus take hold of you for? I studied back in 1994 uh, a series, I, I can't remember how many weeks we were in the study, and it was, it was life-changing for me. I recommend it to any of you. And it's called the Experiencing God Study from Henry Blackaby. And I credit him with this thinking. I will read this statement to you from him. It is probably the most profound statement out of the entire study, which I think takes 13 weeks. Anytime God leads you to do something that has God-sized dimensions, you will face a crisis 
of belief. However, I will tag this onto it. What you do next reveals what you believe about God. That's why I can ask that question, do you really believe that what you say you believe is real? You face a crisis of belief when you say, who am I to go to Pharaoh? Who am I to start a brand new church? If we had looked on the leadership team at the amount of money that we had in the bank back in the spring when we wanted to launch, or we looked at the children's leader we didn't have in place, or looked at the musical leaders that we didn't have in place, see, the world would look at that and say, you're totally ill-prepared. Why would you do that? But God's people know that's the crisis of belief. When you believe that God has set you aside and you say, oh, okay, in obedience, I'll go this way. It is risky. I'm not suggesting that it isn't. But what a risk. To expand the kingdom for God, that's, that's a great risk. Moses was a shepherd. Never before had he led in his entire 80 years of life a group of brickmakers out into the desert to worship God at Mount Sinai. It had never happened before. But he's willing to do it because of this. God said this to him, Certainly, I will be with you. Exodus 3.9 I will be with you. You might say, I wish he would say that to me. He did. God said that. Jesus said this specifically to you. Matthew 28. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you. What you do next reveals what you believe about God. So I end today on this question. Do you really believe that what you believe is real? Pretty heavy, huh? It's okay, it's meant to be. Would you bow with me? Father, we are an imperfect people, and that's why we needed a Savior. Because we are people who are given to uh, times of insecurity. We're given to times of doubt. And Father, when you, <laughs> when you light bushes in front of us sometimes, we totally don't even see them. Matter of fact, I think there's times, Father, when I wanted to get my garden hose out and put out the bush. God, help us. Help us to be humble enough to say, God, I'm just not sure what you're asking me to do, but I trust you. So we've taken off our shoes and we've set them aside, Father, and we've come to you in humility of heart, saying you have a new course direction for us, but we're not quite sure what it is. It might be minor and it might be major. It might be to turn the tide of a country. God, do that through your people. 
through this group of a couple hundred people here, you can turn all of Lansing upside down. I have no doubt of it. Show us, Father. Show us the path. We need your mercy and your grace to accomplish this. For without it, we are nothing. Give us your power and your might, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.